Revelation 22, verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts, come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life. Freely. And may God bless the reading of his word tonight is my prayer. You know, the book of Revelation has long attracted the attention and the admiration of God's people. Uh, scholars have spent years uh, dissecting its truth and delving deep into its mysteries. And God's people generally have spent a lifetime trying, just trying to understand it. Uh, I'm one of those. Uh, it's a book of prophecy, but it's also a book of practical significance and practical truth. Now, there's a lot of questions about the book of Revelation I can't answer. Uh, but just because we can't answer all the questions or explain everything about it doesn't mean that we shouldn't read it and study it. After all, the Bible promises a particular blessing on those who read and study the words of the book of Revelation. Uh, but uh, just by way of example tonight, I'd remind you there's a lot of things in life that we don't understand and we can't explain, but... It really doesn't bother us enough to keep us away from those things. I don't understand why there's interstate highways in Hawaii. But I, I went anyway. I don't understand if Waffle House is open 365 days a year, 24 hours a day, why they have locks on the door. But I go and eat there anyway. I guess they put locks on just in case they ever need to close. That's what somebody told me one time. We wonder why when we transport something by car, we call it a shipment. And when we send it by ship, it's called cargo. I, don't I can't explain that. But if you send me a package, I don't care how it gets there, I'm going to accept it. I'm not going to just uh, exclude it because I can't understand it or explain it. And that's certainly true even more so of the book of Revelation I can see some things about the book of Revelation. I can see it as a book, for example, of alternating scenes. Uh, the Holy Spirit would, uh, or Jesus would show John a scene on earth, and he would follow that by scene in heaven. Scene on earth, scene in heaven, scene on earth, scene in heaven. You see that play out throughout the book. Uh, there are things given to us uh, uh, of uh, the things that are. I, that's the outline that Jesus gives to us there's things that are uh, but there's also things that shall be hereafter so uh, uh, he gave us some concepts about that we know that we have things in there about God's eternal standpoint that is the world as God sees it but we also see things from a human perspective that is a very down-to-earth perspective of how how we see the world and how we see the universe uh, I can see things from a covenantal perspective in the book of Revelation. God made covenants to the nation of Israel, covenants with Noah, covenants with Abraham, covenants with David. Some aspects of those covenants are yet to be fulfilled. And the book of Revelation shows us how that all of those promises of God, all the covenants of God are going to find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Uh, so you look in the Old Testament sometimes, read some of those covenants and 
You say, well, God has some unfinished business. Yes, he'll, he'll finish them through Jesus Christ. All those covenants are going to be headed up in Jesus Christ. I can understand it from a dispensational viewpoint. God is working with the nation of Israel. And he is also discussing along with the mystery, what was known as the mystery uh, of the church. So he tells us a lot about the future of the church. But he also tells us how that relates to the nation of Israel. And God is not through with it yet. There's still uh, some things to come for the nation of Israel. So there's some dispensational things. I can see those things. What I have trouble with is figuring out how they all fit together. And I've just never been able to get my head wrapped around all the pieces of the puzzle. About the time I think I've got it all put together, somebody asks me a question, it just comes all undone. And I have to go back and start all over and I get it all pieced up and then it just repeats itself and repeats itself. I take comfort in the fact that there's seven thunders who spoke in the book of Revelation. John picked up his pen, started to write down what they said, and the Lord said, no, write it not. Now, he went to all that trouble just so we would understand that he did not give us a full picture. Some of it he kept for himself. And uh, that's what the Old Testament tells us. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God. But what is revealed belong to us and our children forever. God knows some things that he's not telling. And even to yet. He put those things in the book and didn't tell us what they were. That's just to remind us that uh, though we're smart and though we spend a lifetime studying it, we're not going to get it all figured out. And why there are so many people who read it and study it who have such different viewpoints about it. God uh, tells us how this thing is all going to wrap up and he gave us that information long ago in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 9 and 10. Ephesians 1.10 was a passage that I was taught in seminary. It's the key to our understanding of the whole Bible. And it's still the key to that understanding today. Ephesians 1.9, having made known unto us the mystery of His will. That's a big statement. The mystery of His will. According to His good pleasure which He hath purposed in Himself. That... In the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. That is the mystery of his will, God's purpose. What we call the redemptive purpose of God in Jesus Christ, God's purpose is to gather together in one, all in Christ. John will tell us about the four horsemen and the great dragon and the lamb slain from the foundation of the earth. He'll show us the seven vials, the seven trumpet judgments, and all from the book with seven seals. But before he puts down his prophetic pen, Jesus Christ speaks with this one last expression. Verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you to these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. After carefully identifying himself as the spokesman, he then gives a sevenfold invitation. The Spirit 
and the bride say, Come. Let him who hears say, Come. Let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. First of all, tonight we see that the Holy Spirit says, Come. The Holy Spirit says, Come. In John chapter 16, Jesus promised that the work of the Spirit in the New Testament would be to convince, literally to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. So that one of the things that the Holy Spirit is doing right now in this world is pointing people to Jesus Christ. The Spirit says, come. John chapter 16 and verse 7 Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's expedient. That is better for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter, that's the Holy Spirit, will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. And of judgment, because the Prince of this world is judged. The Holy Spirit is revealing these things to humanity because humanity at large is stunningly ignorant of the three things. And the only way that any person ever comes to understand the truth about these three things is under the convicting power of the Holy Spirit of God. What does He do? He convinces people, number one, of the truth of sin. Why is that so necessary? Because humanity responds to the idea of sin by saying, What? 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 I'm not that bad. What do you mean? We never see sin, you see, apart from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit shows us sin by pointing us to the cross of Calvary. Because it is there at the cross of Calvary that you see sin for what it really is. You see that beaten and bloodied brow and back. You see him. Suffering and bleeding under the hatred and opposition of humanity. Oh, we might think, oh, you know, sin's not all that bad. Look at the cross. There are all of the beauty and allurements and temptations that go along with sin are all stripped away. And you see it as it really, really is. No wonder the Bible describes those in their sins as being at enmity with God. That is, they are openly hostile. Toward God and the things of God. Whether they realize it or not. And only the Holy Spirit can convince a person of their sin. What sin? The sin of unbelief. The sin of unbelief. Refusing to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why people go to hell. Because they refuse to believe. You see, if all we were talking about was everybody's individual sin, we might well be able to sit around and just have us a comparison. Well, you did that? Well, look, that's, a, that's pretty bad. You know, I'm not that bad. Yeah, I've never done this. I've never done that. And, and we see all these different degrees. But the fact is that the sin that causes a person to spend eternity in hell is to refuse to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that would save them. And it takes the Holy Spirit then to show people why that unbelief is that terrible sin. The Holy Spirit then convicts people of righteousness. 
because I go to my Father. You see, uh, again, we have no means of attaining unto righteousness, although we think we can. If we don't understand about sin, it's not surprising then that we don't understand about righteousness either. We think we can do good things. They outweigh our bad things, and yet the Bible says that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags in the sight of God. That is, when we offer them our righteousnesses, our good works, our good deeds, our alms deeds, if we offer them to God, saying, accept me on the basis of these, God sees those things as completely rejected. Because we are accepted where? In the blood. In the beloved, our acceptance from God is found only in Jesus Christ. And of judgment, because the prince of the world is judged, of judgment, men will not understand the truth about judgment until we understand that Satan has already been judged and all those who follow him, all those who are preyed upon by him, all those that he leads astray, all those who follow him are going to get the same thing that he gets, judgment. Holy Spirit then is working in the world to convince people about the truth of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. We tend to justify our sins. We tend to magnify our righteousness. We tend to think we can somehow pacify God's judgment. But the Holy Spirit shows us the truth. The Spirit says, come. Bride says come. The bride of Christ is one of many metaphors used in Scripture to refer to the people of God. When we project our thinking into eternity, into the heavenly realm, God's Word repeatedly presents the gathering together of God's people into one, as in Ephesians 1.10 and other places like 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 16. For the Lord Himself, remember this famous passage, shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 presents two classes of believers. Those who are dead in Christ, they go first. Then those that are alive, they go next. (laughs) And then we're caught up together. We meet the Lord where? In the air. And what a meeting that's going to be. We meet the Lord in the air. And then that glorious line, so shall we ever be with the Lord. So shall we ever be with the Lord. So the Bible presents and speaks many, many times. I could give you many other passages tonight. Many times of that great gathering together of God, unto God by His people How that we as the saved people of all tribes and tongues, of all nations, of all ages, will be gathered together in one place and enjoy that immeasurable, uh, eternal time of fellowship and service and worship. Now we can discuss and debate about how that's all going to play out in eternity. And I'm going to tell you right right up front that uh, Baptist people, Baptist preachers just love to sit around and fight about this stuff. 
And I don't mind telling you, I like it too. I do. Uh, but regardless of how we think about how this is going to be playing out in eternity, for the here and now, there's really not any discussion as far as I'm concerned, and there's really not much debate. Because the fact is that all of God's people cannot be gathered together in one place down here. Uh, and the reason for that is rather obvious. Obviously, if God was going to gather together all of His people in one place, well, that would be Faith Baptist Church in Cabot. <laughs> And we ain't even got room for them all, even if we filled up the parking lot in the back 40 back here. I mean, we, this whole city won't have room. You can't gather together all of God's people now in one place. It can't happen. It's going to happen. You believe that? I do. But it can't happen right now. It doesn't happen on earth. It can't. Instead, God has given us a place where his people are to gather together. He warns us not to forsake it. Don't forsake the assembling, the gathering together, as some is. And what that is, is New Testament churches. Just like Faith Baptist, we're certainly one, but there are many, many others in our own community and all over the world. Every church, every true church on this planet today exists as an example then of what Jesus calls the bride. It could also just as easily be called by any one of the other metaphors that is used for the people of God, the body of Christ, the house of God, the flock of God. Every true church stands as a example of any one of those metaphors. So it is perfectly right to look at Faith Baptist and say that it is the bride of Christ or that uh, it is a body of Christ, that it is the house of God, that it is the flock. It is. One day there's only going to be one. They'll be gathered together in one, Ephesians 1.10. But right now, it's local churches. That's all we have to deal with. From time to time, people ask me, uh, why you don't believe that there's a universal church made up of all the saved on earth at any one time. And this is why. Uh, because such a church could never, ever have a meeting. And the idea of assembly, the word church simply means assembly. And the idea of assembling something that can't assemble, it just doesn't fit with what the New Testament says. That's why you find not church all over the New Testament, but churches again and again and again and again. Uh, you see that play out in the book of Acts. For a while, there's only one church. <laughs> uh, then they got big and big and big and big and big, and the Lord scattered them. Boom. As they scattered, they went everywhere preaching the gospel. People were baptized. They were saved, added to the church. And then all of a sudden, we have churches after that persecution led by that guy named Saul. And it was that way through the rest of the New Testament. And it remains so today. Why do you bring that up? Well, because the bride says, come. A big part of what a New Testament church does is invite people to come to Jesus Christ. The Spirit says, come. The bride says, come. Those who hear, let him who hears say, come. You see, this isn't just something that the Holy Spirit does and we leave it to Him. 
And it's not something that just the church should do. Every person who has genuinely been born again has the opportunity and the obligation to say, come to the lost world around you. You may not know much of anything else. You might be a, a newborn believer in Christ. But if you've been saved, you can tell somebody else how to get saved. You can tell them what happened to you. Because the way what happened to you is what needs to happen to them. We don't get to individualize our salvation and make it up for ourselves. And my salvation is absolutely unique and, and nobody else gets it. No, everybody who's ever been saved and ever will be saved has been saved exactly the same way. You believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That's how you're saved. You have an obligation and an opportunity to tell the lost world how to be saved. I love Mark 5, 18, one of my favorite stories. Uh, Jesus was dealing with a demon-possessed man, and he cast the demons out of him. They found him then sitting and clothed in his right mind. What a testimony he was. <laughs> oh, I love the story. But after it all played out, then he who had been demon-possessed, verse 18, begged him, that's begged Jesus, that he might go with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis, his hometown, all that Jesus had done for him and all marveled. What a testimony that man was. This is a guy that used to live out in the graveyard that scared everybody that would attack people. They tried everything they could to work and couldn't do anything. Now there he is, sitting and clothed in his right mind. What a testimony. He said, you go back. And uh, if he couldn't find the words to say, all he had to do was sit there and smile. My goodness. What a testimony. What a testimony. Can you imagine after all those years of being demon-possessed, what that man looked like? After being thrown, after throwing himself in the fire and living out the way he did, can you imagine how many scars he had on his body? Can you imagine what he must have looked like? What a testimony he was to the saving power of the gospel. You see, there was something that he could do, and that is that he could point people to Jesus. And if you've been saved, you can too. The Spirit says, Come. The bride says, Come. Let him who hears say, come. Three different times, then Jesus speaks to those who would give the invitation. The Spirit, bride, him who hears, let him say, come. Then the scene shifts. Let those, let him who thirsts come. Now Jesus is appealing directly to those who need him. From the ones who get to share in giving to the invitation to the ones who would receive this remarkable invitation. 
Jesus gave us a remarkable illustration of those who are thirsty in John chapter 4 when he said to the woman at the well, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. This is a great testimony to what Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 55. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me. And eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me here and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. You see, Jesus presents the indisputable fact of the thirst of mankind. But he also presents the fact that anything people turn to to satisfy their thirst except Jesus Christ is only going to make them more thirsty. Whoever drinks of this water will what? Thirst again. Thirst again. Well, Jesus Christ then calls to those who are thirsty. And he says, come. Then there's those who are willing. Whosoever will. Whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Verse 17, whosoever will. To me, God has forever settled the great debate between the Calvinists and the Armenian and all points in between with the last invitation, whosoever will. The reason I said in all points in between is because we're neither Calvinist nor Armenian. We're Bible-believing Christians, I like to think, but there's a lot of people who are on both sides of that, of that equation. And if you're not into all that, I understand. But let's just say that the Bible makes it very plain. Whosoever will. To me, that's just pretty solid. What do you think? Whosoever will. See, there's an idea that, uh, that says that God is the one who does all the choosing, that God calls certain people to salvation, and certain people are never going to get called. God has picked and chosen, and, and that nobody is going to come to Him except the ones that He has chosen. And, and all those that He didn't choose, man, they're just left out there. Too bad for them, man. It, it's bad, man. But Jesus said, whosoever will. We understand that no one is willing unless the Holy Spirit makes us willing. That's true. Jesus said in John chapter 6 and verse 44 that no man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him. And he followed that up then by saying, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me hath everlasting life. That's John 6, 47. I think about the story that was told in Luke chapter 19 when Jesus was weeping over the city of Jerusalem. And we all know that short verse in the Bible, Jesus wept, uh, that, he, uh, was, uh, that happened at the uh, grave of Lazarus when he was about to call him forth. Jesus wept. But don't forget when Jesus wept over Jerusalem, Luke chapter 19. Now, he didn't just get a little misty-eyed. He wept aloud. That's what that verse means. He cried. 
in brokenness. He cried copious tears. As you read on in that passage and you add in Matthew's account of the same incident, you'll find out that before Jesus was done, he would be saying to the city of Jerusalem, Old Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered you together as a hen gathereth her chicks, and you would not. You would not. You would not. The Calvinist ideas were true. And those people were not seeking him simply because they never had the chance to seek him. God never. Then Jesus' tears over Jerusalem were crocodile tears. I don't believe that. I just take his word very simply whosoever will. When the Bible tells us that, that God is, that Jesus was the true light and that he lights every man that comes into the world, I believe that. I don't understand it. I can't un- explain it. Go back to what we already started with in the book of Revelation. I don't know how God works all that out. I leave most of that to him. I do know what whosoever will means. How about you? Y'all know about that? Let whosoever will come. Whosoever will. Those who are willing need to come. Then he makes salvation so simple and gives such a simple invitation. Let him take, he says, let him take the water of life. Salvation, you see, is presented as a gift that must be accepted. A gift that must be accepted. I have often told and love telling it. You've heard it. I know it. But every time I think about this passage, about something being accepted, I think about the strange case of George Wilson. George Wilson was a postal clerk. He robbed a train that he was guarding, took the money. He was caught, convicted, sentenced to hang. For some unknown reason, President Andrew Johnson signed his pardon. And George Wilson refused to accept it. The case went all the way to the Supreme Court. You can look it up online. Check it out. The Supreme Court issued its verdict that said a pardon is a contract. An acceptance of which is tantamount to its enforcement. What that means is that a pardon isn't a pardon until accepted. Accepted. Jesus presents a very simple plan of salvation. Let him take it. It is a gift that he offers to us, and that gift must be accepted. I think about how eager people are these days to get stuff uh, that is presented to them as a gift. Uh, last Easter at our Easter outreach, I was talking to a, a family who had come here. They had gone to another one uh, back uh, earlier in the week. And uh, he said at this other one that they went to, uh, he said a church was offering in their Easter eggs that they had hidden out all over pl- all those places. There was a, a tickets, free tickets to Disney World, four tickets to send their family hidden in an Easter egg. 
And this guy said, that was the craziest thing I'd ever been in in my life. He said, man, parents were knocking kids out of the way and throwing kids around and grabbing up stuff. He said, I couldn't wait to get out of there to get free tickets to Disney World. I think about that every time. I think about people walking out those doors saying no to Jesus Christ who offers them the eternal gift of salvation. Not interested, don't want it, don't want to hear about it, don't want anything to do with it. Hmm. Jesus told us he came unto his own, said of Jesus, John did, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to those that believe on his name. I like this last word, freely, freely. Anybody here tonight but me like free stuff? <laughs> oh, man, I tell you, you, just go to Cabot Fest. They give you a big old sack. Mine wasn't near big enough. I tell you, I can. free stuff? Oh, yeah, man, give me one of them pens. Yeah, I've got a 14 years supply worth of pens and, and scratch pads and no pads. Man, free stuff. Yeah, we like free. I pass that along to my kids. They got the same DNA that I got. They like free stuff. Uh, my son Kyle came home, I promise you, one day, and, and I, I try my best not to use them in sermons, so don't tell him I mentioned this. Came home with a recliner he picked up off the side of the road and wanted to bring it in our house. No, uh-uh, not happening. They like free stuff. Salvation is free. There's a principle of economics, and I may misquote it, that says that whatever one person receives uh, for free, whatever one person receives for free without paying for, whatever one person receives without paying for, someone else must pay for without receiving principle of economics. We say that simply, <laughs> that there ain't no free lunch. Somebody paid for it. Somebody pays for it. That's never more true than in the freedom of salvation. It comes free to us. But brothers and sisters, somebody paid for it. He paid an incredible price. He died on the cross for your sins and mine. He paid the price. And we see then that marvelous last word of the last invitation in the Bible. Freely. Freely. And the freeness of salvation then is offered to us all. I realized when uh, I got this passage of Scripture on my mind this week, studying about it, I knew I was going to be giving you all a double dose about salvation and the gospel, about witnessing. I knew that. <laughs> uh, and I did it anyway, okay? I did it anyway. I did it for two reasons. Uh, number one, I don't think anybody will ever accuse me of preaching too much gospel. Preaching too much about the doctrine of salvation. If you ever do, I'll pray for you because I'm not going to stop. And number two, 
sharing that message of salvation. It's what the church is all about. This is what the Spirit does. We all know the Spirit's doing His job. And the bride says, come. We've got something to invite people to. Let's do it. Stand together, please.